Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, also on the outreach team and the editor of the most recent edition of the Chief's Guide. Paul, welcome to Friday, a snowy Friday. We got a little dusting here in Annapolis overnight. Yes, good morning. Uh, a little, uh, I didn't even catch that yet, about zero one it started. Yeah. And then uh, where I lived out in Arnold, you know, about two to three inches you know, accumulation. So, uh, you know, apologize everyone for the little bit of a late start if you were prompting for a 0830 live stream on this. But we're here. We have our guests here. Uh, but before that, you have a couple of things that uh, you want to put out? Yeah. Hey, just uh, as we go forward, you know, I know we, we talk a lot about outreach up here and, you know, it is the proceedings podcast, but one of the lines of effort I work in uh, is down in our Naval Institute Press as uh, an acquisitions editor and working under the professional book side working to you know align those to leadership development strategies and uh, and mature those books and make sure they're relevant for the fleet. So in light of March being Women's History Month, I just want to make a plug out that, hey, we have a lot of uh, titles available. Uh, I learned a few of about there's a few history titles on women in the U.S. Navy. So we shared that on our Facebook post. So I want to encourage people to take a look at those. And uh, there's some great titles out there uh, that uh, we offer. So in recent weeks, well, actually in the last year plus, We've talked about a lot of things in the wake of Fitzgerald and McCain. Everything from Admiral Mullen talking about SWO career paths to SWO training. We've talked op tempo with uh, former 7th Fleet uh, CEO Admiral Alcoin. Um, we've, we've talked about inspection cycles. We've talked about sleep cycles. Any manner of of ways to come at this tragedy that was 17 sailors killed in the yep. summer of 2017. So today we're going to look at it from yet another angle. And we have two guests who have both used the independent forum of the Naval Institute to tee up actionable ideas. Today we have with us uh, Command Mass Chief Scott Kelly, who works at the Regional Maintenance Center down in Norfolk. And then also retired Captain uh, John Cordell. Uh, in, I believe it was September of 2018, Scott wrote an, an article about Let Your Sailors Fix It, and that resonated with me because at my time at Fleet Forces, it was definitely a focus area for me is, hey, how do we build technical management capability and, and focus and authority back uh, into the enlisted force? So Scott, welcome. Uh, John, welcome. Could you go ahead and, uh, and each give a brief introduction and a little background, then we'll get into the discussion. All right, Paul. Hey, this is Scott Kelly. Thank you. Uh that article that I wrote back in 2018 was directed at the CEOs of ships to allow their sailors to work on the gear. Uh, 20 years ago, we started going away from that and contracting out maintenance, and we weren't allowing sailors to learn their trade, nor were we letting them work on the gear. We're trying to get away from that now uh, at the regional maintenance centers, the naval shipyards, and on all of our large deck ships, we have a program called NAMPS. Navy afloat maintenance training strategy where we're doing hands-on training and training sailors to be able to be experts in their field. So when they come to a shore duty at like a regional maintenance center, they learn their trade and when they go back to sea, they can fix the gear and they're experts. And we give uh, NECs that are uh, net sea approved NECs that are recognized under billet-based distribution that we issue to these sailors so that we know that they're experts out at the fleet. And uh, I'm talking to a lot of the COs. Uh, I go to PCO courses and talk to them about the, the importance of allowing their sailors to work on the gear and what we're doing at uh, all of our sites to try to train the sailors and be self-sufficient in the high-end fight. 
when uh, something happens out at sea in the high-end fight, it's going to be a communication-denied environment, not going to be able to call back home for help or pull into port. If you take battle damage, you have to repair that battle damage and continue to fix the ship. And if we don't train our sailors how to do that, we'll never get there. John? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, when I started thinking about this, my old strike group commander, Admiral Buss, was uh, telling a story one time about how uh, the SWOs cracked me up because, you know, in the aviation community, the two things we hold dear is our pipeline training for our officers and our AIMD ability to fix ourselves. And, uh, you know, the SWO community sort of threw those out of 10 years ago, and now you've realized you need them back, and it's going to take you 10 years to rebuild it. And so we're doing that on the slow side. On the uh, You see a lot of motion there, uh, but there's just as much motion on the maintenance side. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to a former CEO of the Regional Maintenance Center, and he said, you know, one of his primary tasks, in addition to fixing ships, is training sailors to fix ships. So uh, I think that, the you know, the NAMPS program is a great move in that direction. I'll also mention, I think Scott may have more on this, but the U.S. MAP, um, is is a little more shipboard uh, centric, but it also gives the sailors credit um, for the work that they do, and then that those credits between those and NAMPS can actually be turned into more of a civilian certification down the road. So there's an incentive there as well. Just to back it up, let's let's get in this concept of what self sufficiency is. Why you know the three of us, you know, we exchange that term pretty frequently, but what is what is maintenance self sufficiency? Why is it important in the fleet? Um, let's start there. Yeah, the importance of that, is right now we're really struggling to get our ships out of maintenance on time. Uh, the number one priority of NAVC is on-time delivery of ships and submarines. And when we roll into an availability, we find a lot of growth work. We find a lot of uh, maintenance that we've deferred because of uh, you know the up-tempo or whatever that we've, we're now trying to catch up with. And when we get our trained sailors underway to be able to start fixing this equipment and identifying all the issues prior to an avail, I, the way I feel is that we will eventually decrease the amount of overrun on our avails. We're going to have less growth work because we're going to have a much better material assessment of our commands and our ships. And we're going to do a lot of TA4 work, which is when the ship's force does the work underway or wherever prior to an avail. Uh, and we're seeing that now. We have a guy over at Surfland, uh, Brian McLean, who captures that data. And the TA4 work that's getting done across the waterfront is increasing drastically over the last couple of years. And we're really keeping a close eye on that and we're trying to tie that in. But we're definitely not there yet. We just don't have enough throughput of our sailors that we've been training back out into the fleet. And we're getting there, but it's just going to take more runtime. You know, I would just add, you know, self-sufficiency means really three things. Do I have the, the training to recognize that there's a problem uh, and then the training to fix it? Do I have the tools to fix it? You know, a lot of our high-tech items out there, you get to step five in the tech manual, and it says, you know, call the dealer. Um, and so, you know, the sailors have to be able to to, to have both the training and the tools, uh, which I think is there's a lot of things headed in that direction as well. The last piece is time, um, and I think with some of the changes out there, you know, you, t you talked about op-tempo, you talked about uh, watch rotations and things like that, is uh, do the sailors have the time to fix it? You know, those TA4 jobs that Scott talked about, if you look closely at them, um, if I'm a sailor and I'm assigned one TA4 job, which is to go fix a widget, 
that may be all, that may be a work day. You know, that may be get the tag out, get the hazmat, get the tools, get permission to work, prep the space, do the work, clean the space. Um, you know, how many of our sailors have four or six hours to dedicate to a single task in a day? You know, that's part of the challenge as well. It's a great point, John. And, uh, you know, no one, unless you're a maintenance man, you don't understand all the stuff that goes into doing maintenance before you can even actually start turning a wrench. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into it prior to that. And, you know, one of the other efforts that we have going on right now is SORCAT, which is our ship's organic repair assessment team, where we're going out and we're assessing the organic repair capability of each ship. Uh, Every ship in the Navy was built with an organic repair capability. Uh, And we've allowed, over the last years, we've allowed that organic repair capability to deteriorate. We understand that as a Navy, and that's why we're getting out there to assess that, and we're trying to fix that. And We're we're working deployers right now so that when they deploy, they can be a lot more self-sufficient. But in that, uh, when we go out there to do that assessment, we're looking at manning and NECs, uh, redline NECs, and other NAMPS NECs that they're supposed to have to be able to operate their organic repair capability. We're looking at the machinery, whatever it is, a lathe, uh, motor rewind on large decks, 2M. 2M is a big one, which the Navy has actually done a pretty good job of keeping up on. But the rest of it is is uh, difficult difficult to get back into shape. So we're getting there. We're looking at all that. and But, again, the manning is the big piece, is getting the people that are qualified to do it back out to sea. And we're 10 years of runtime into our training now. So we're starting to get, we're starting to see results, and over the next four or five years, we're hoping to see a lot more. So each of you guys did an article, summer of 2018, basically. John, yours was in June, and, and Scott, yours was in September, uh, coming at this this problem. Scott, you, yours was called "Let the Sailors Fix It," and the sort of sub title would be "How We Screwed Up Intermediate Maintenance," right? And and so, can we talk about? How it used to be, and and either under the auspices of, of of budget reductions or whatever, we morphed into another thing, and and what we lost in the process there. I'm not exactly sure when we started this, but it was around 20 years ago. Uh, we decided it was a good idea to contract out maintenance rather than have eye level maintenance do a lot of our work, and that's where, frankly, a lot of our commanding officers of ships right now grew up in that environment as young JGs and the ensigns as divos. And when there was a CAS rep, they CAS reps and they didn't worry about sailors working on stuff. They got tech reps and civilians to come in to fix the stuff. And at the same time, we decommissioned all of our destroyer tenders and we shut down our SIMAs or drastically reduced the capability and merged them with shipyards, which is depot level maintenance. Uh, and that was quality shore duty for sailors to go and learn their trade and that's where from when i was a young sailor coming up whether you were in hm and e work at, you know an engineer or a mechanic or even a, as a technician an etfc you would go to a sima and that's where you would learn your trade and if you were a technical rate you were a fleet tech assist you would go out and work on radars and communication equipment and everything and if you're hm and e you'd be you know, replacing valves or doing whatever it was that needed to be done on the ships. And we had production work going on all the time. If you walk into Mid-Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center, it's this humongous building, and it's full of different machinery, lathes, drill presses, all kinds of stuff. And those machines were always running. 
and we're trying to get back to that where they're always running. So there's sailors fixing stuff for sailors on ships. And these changes were made because of budget reductions or, uh, and, and so, you, you know, manpower savings, like you said, I mean, the first thing to go will be uh, shore duty bullets, right? Um, you, as you said, it was a good deal for sailors. To, this was good shore duty. So, in, in uh, you know, when, when the budget cuts start coming, those will be the first things yeah. to go away. And also, remember, we were coming out of the Cold War, right? So, you know, the whole footprint uh, of the Navy and DOD was changing, right? So, perhaps you didn't need as much uh, float tender maintenance forward, right? And you were reducing the size of the Navy, you know, with 600 or so ships back then, 600,000 sailors or so. Yeah. That was being reduced naturally. So this was another consequence, I believe, of that. No, you're right. And, you know, Scott really hit on a point. It's kind of generational in nature in that the, the folks, you know, with 20 years in the Navy now sort of started out in that environment after those cuts were made. And I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the loss of the technical skills that were gained at the shore commands was sort of an unfortunate and maybe unforeseen consequence of the cuts. I'm not sure that that was all kind of rolled up as, as what's going to happen when we do this, what's going to be the output five, ten years from now when we send sailors back to sea that didn't have that opportunity. And maybe, you know, different time, different decision process, but uh, but it takes a long time to reverse that, I guess would be my point. Yeah, and that's, that's a, a huge point. So uh, another... John, your your article was about the creation of an of an SK rating that's analogous to the AK rating, and as an aviator, I, I I didn't know that 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 wasn't a thing already in the surface community. Um, I think it was like an AZ, like an so AZ. an SZ rating. Yeah, AZ. Um, and and right. and so, um, t- talk to us a little bit about the culture that has prevented that from happening, because this is also what Scott was saying early on about, and what I hear is sort of maintenance as uh, secondary duty kind of approach to uh, the average ship crew, not your primary duty, but it's something that we all do along the way. And I know that's a very simplistic uh, analogy, but talk to us about what you uh, were, were dealing with in your article uh, back in June of, of 2018. Okay. Um, so one of the things that Scott hit on is, is the ability of the sailors to both fix their stuff, document the discrepancies, but also perform the plan maintenance um, and uh, I remember in my time back at Surfland, uh, we saw an, uh, an instance where we just increased the frequency of, of PMS. If it was supposed to be monthly, we did it uh, weekly. If we were supposed to do it biweekly, we did it, you know, maybe uh, twice a week. Um, it took more time, but the sailors got better, and they actually found things and learned more about their equipment. Um, so, uh, so plan maintenance is another piece of it. But my article was focused on the maintenance managers, the uh, the 3MC we call them on the ship. Um, and for those that aren't familiar, that's a billet uh, where essentially a chief petty officer um, is, he volunteers for the duty, and he applies, and he goes to a two-week school. From his, So he's in his source rating, a gunner's mate, a, a, an IT, a ET. Um, he applies for a two-week school. He gets an NEC as a uh, 3M, 3M coordinator. Then he goes back to the ship, and he runs the 3M program, which includes the scheduling of planned maintenance the scheduling and maintenance of the ship's maintenance plan, the CSMP, and uh, and plays a role also in the uh, in the planning for availabilities, as Scott mentioned. But his primary role is keeping the, the 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 process moving, and then training the junior sailors on how to plan and execute plan maintenance and uh, and document corrected maintenance. So here you have an individual that on the aviation side, that's a career path. You know, I remember on my uh, strike group staff. Uh, when the maintenance officer and the maintenance master chief stood up, they were everybody listened, and uh, and that was they, they carried a ton of weight. 
and as Admiral Buss would say, you know, if, if, if my maintenance folks didn't maintain my aircraft, I wouldn't fly it. Um, yeah, that's and for so sure. There's, lo- <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of trust there. Now, Absolutely. his plane will fall out of the sky, whereas the ship will just stop and float, but that's a different, uh, it's still not a good thing. But but the bottom line is, um, rather than treating it, uh, my, my article was about the idea of, uh, and again, it was my opinion, but it's, it's been battered around in the past, is let's make this a specialty. Let's make this a core competency for a group of people, and let's nurture that from the E6 level over to chief, give them a new rating, and then they stay in that rating. Because the other piece of this is, if I'm a 3MC, I finish my tour, most of my other billets now are back in my core rating. And I, if I go to a strike group staff or a, or a Desron staff, I'm not necessarily billeted in, in the 3M world again. So it's sort of a, a touch and go for many of those folks. There's a few billets, but uh, in general, uh, and then for them competitively, and Scott may be able to speak to this better, it sometimes can, can sometimes it helps them, sometimes it hurts them in that uh, they're not in their rate. So they're competing against other ETs uh, who might be a combat systems maintenance manager or an engineer might be a top snipe. And so, uh, so it's, you know, this would allow a career path where it sort of consolidates that expertise and has a shore infrastructure and a sea infrastructure that allows a progression from shipboard to strike group staff, Desron staff, ATG, and then to the TICOM and fleet level. So, John, have you gained any traction or what? Any feedback at the you know TICOM level to your idea? Um, well, first of all, it's not my idea. It's been floating around for a while. I just like I do everything else, I captured a bunch of ideas and wrote it into an article. But um, Once it's in proceedings, it it's your idea. Yes. <laughs> okay. See? That's <laughs> um, how that goes. If, uh, it, it, I think it has. I mean, Scott can attest to this, but uh, it definitely got. It definitely resonated with the uh, ship CEOs and Commodores that I've spoken to. Um, I know it's been sort of, uh, it's been briefed up the chain, and uh, there seems to be good feedback. And, uh, you know, it certainly takes time. I know Bupers has consolidated the, uh, the 3M rating shore and sea, so it makes that step easier. And I think there is sort of a, a pathway laid out to get there from here. I think there's a lot of analysis that needs to happen, but I do get the sense that the winds are blowing in this direction. Uh, Scott, anything to add? Yeah, I certainly concur. Uh, we've definitely briefed this particular uh, option to several admirals, Admiral Whitney, uh, Admiral Wilson over at Surfland is aware of it. My Admiral, Admiral Downey, is aware of it, uh, a bunch of SESs. And, you know, we're really trying. Uh, the Force Master Chief over at Surfland is aligned with me on this one as well. Uh, you know, there's nothing but goodness that could come out of somebody that is a dedicated maintenance professional where their own career path is aligned to how well the maintenance is going on their ship. They would compete against other maintenance managers of other ships, and if their ship maintenance-wise was doing worse than the other ship, their own career path would suffer, as well as the ship's maintenance. And right now, most people that take a 3MC job take it to remain in a geographical area, not because they want to be a maintenance professional. They take it because they want to get orders to San Diego or Norfolk or whatever, and that's the only way they can get there. So they become a 3MC, and then they go back to their rate. And the advancement levels for 3MCs while they're sitting as 3MCs is very low because they're competing against their peers who are a departmental LCPO within their own rate, and they're, they're training and running a bunch of sailors, whereas the 3MC has a 3M assistant, and that's about it. So it's, uh, I mean, I think that this would be a fantastic thing, and I've been working hard at it along with John and some other people to try to make this happen. 
I also see beyond the unit level, right, at the TICOM level, at the fleet staff level, you know, imagine this vision of having a mass chief who's done this, you know, since the chief petty officer level and they're steeped in eye level and beyond maintenance. I think there's a, a potential and a capability uh, that currently doesn't exist. I think there's a gap on the flag level staffs of that, uh, that in-depth maintenance uh, perspective, and I think we could win there. Uh, John, you mentioned something that I'd like to pick at a bit. You mentioned about talking to CEOs and Commodores. So as you get around, you hear it. Maybe, Scott, you hear this too. What is their perspective of you know, organic ship capability to repair itself, right? What's their perspective of the chief's ability to lead that kind of maintenance? Uh, are they confident in it? Are they not confident? What are they saying? What do we need to do? I would say I get a variety of, uh, you know, kind of depends on who you're talking to, but uh, I think a common theme, like I said, is the time uh, and the tools. Uh, the training is coming around, but as Scott said, you know, even if you train a 1,000 sailors this year in the NAMPS and send them back to sea, that's only a couple per ship. So so it's, we're kind of on the leading edge of that. That comment I made before about the technology, you know, I had a CEO tell me that we got a new revision of this equipment, and under the old tech manual, the troubleshooting guide had you go through step, you know, step Q, and then you get to call, then it said call the, the manufacturer. The new tech manual came out with the new equipment, and it says you get to step C. And it says call the manufacturer. So there's a piece of this that's that's the equipment that we're getting is more technologically advanced, um, more proprietary, and it's tougher. You know, the, the, you can't break the seal on it uh, to fix it. So that's a challenge. Um, the technical training of the of the uh, chiefs mess. Today's chiefs were sort of a product of that uh, revolution in training, but uh, I don't see. You know, a lot of folks sort of bemoan. Uh, I hear. Uh, retired folks bemoan the level of, of the chief's mess. I didn't see that. My chiefs were pretty up front, uh, pretty up to the task. My 3MC was, a, was, you know, both of them were very solid. They were trying really hard. It wasn't a matter of motivation. It was more a matter of training, experience, and time. I guess that's kind of my cut, Scott. Yeah, I think that in the last five or six years, we've really been getting the word out, and COs are starting to turn the corner on their confidence in their sailors to work on gear. Um, I, I think before that it was, there was no confidence whatsoever. And I think, you know, following after the collision damage on both Fitzgerald and McCain, the crew performed great getting the ship tightened up so that they didn't sink. Uh, they showed their technical expertise on being able to save those ships. And I think that that went a long way and, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're still not all the way to where we were, you know, 15 years ago, but, our technical expertise within the chief's mess is much better. The new chiefs that are in the chief's mess now have been trained the way they should be. It's really the guys that are senior chiefs and, you know, master chiefs in the chief's mess that were in the era that we didn't train them as in-depth as we used to. We're getting to the point now where the old guys are going to start rolling out and we're going to have a very well-trained and technical expert force out there in the fleet in the coming years. John, you mentioned something that resonates with me when you're talking about Admiral Buss's attitude um, where he says, if I didn't have the maintenance, my airplane would fall out of the sky. You would never launch single engine, but you would put to sea, and this the CR flagged this, you would put to sea single screw. Um, are, are we seeing, uh, Master Chief, a, a change in that attitude, do we think, as a function of the, uh, the CR? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh we are the ships are not allowed to get underway with any kind of navigational equipment that is down 
we have redundancies in almost every single thing that we have under on our ships. And we used to get underway with all kinds of equipment down, single source left. And we don't do that anymore. Or if it is, it's a flag level decision for those ships to get underway without a capability. And specifically in navigation, we, we don't allow it at all. So, I mean, it's like the four-star level for a navigational failure to still get underway. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I think there has been a lot more open conversation about the impact of casualties and the risk that you take with you, if you have equipment down. Uh, I just saw um, Admiral Aquilino's uh, testimony where he talked about ships not deploying because they, of some lacking in certification and discrepancy. And, you know, those are we're, we're at the tip of the iceberg there, but at least we're, uh, I do sense a sense uh, of turning the corner a little bit. When you talk about flagging equipment broken, obviously COs have some concern that this, when they do sing out, that it may reflect poorly on their ability to, uh, you know, be a hacker. I think that's well, huge, right? This uh, the CO going to the ISIC and and saying no, I need time to fix the ship. And I had personal experiences, Kamehameha Chief on USS Juno with this, you know. 40-year-old, four-deployed amphib. Um, this was back 2004 through six. I know, but but my point is if if I'm that guy, right, and, and you go up the chain, you sing out, the first question that I would ask would be, okay, so how much liberty have you guys had, you know, in, in recent weeks? Did, you, did people go home for the weekends when this was broken? Right, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, right. I, you know, so it's easy to say for my good friend Lung, Tomcat, uh, guy to to say oh it's all good and, and we want COs to uh, to uh, flag when things are wrong that yeah. that that sounds good in testimony but on you know peer side is it going to play out that way you know if you're the CEO who's always uh, Mr. Honesty yep. you know I, I don't I don't know if that you're going to be winning in the Fit Rep 500 and I don't want to be cynical about it but but we all know how this no, goes you hit on a good point and uh, and I guess. Again, um, there's a generational piece to this. You can't just flip a switch and say, okay, now I'm going to listen, right, um, after not doing it for a long time. And, uh, but if I tell my boss that I can't get underway, um, in my mind, it's incumbent upon the boss to look at my command tent and say, wow, I trusted you to take command of this ship. I have to trust your opinion here. I'm not going to question your liberty policy. I'm not going to question how you got here. Um, we'll have that, we might have that conversation later, but for now, um, Tell me why you can't go, and tell me what I need to do to help you fix it. Yep. And, uh, uh, you know, that's I think, uh, has always been kind of the challenge. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I got a lot of fit reps in my time, some good, some bad, and, and I did okay. So <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you worry about your fit reps uh, some, but I hope in command you worry about your crew and your ship, and, and, uh, and the fit rep will follow. If you if you did the right thing, yeah. So I think what you're yeah. saying, what you're saying, John, is it, when you flag an issue, you better have your story straight, yep. right? And you better right. have done all of the compulsories leading up to, you know, this at at this time in the face of having done mo- trying to move Earth and Sky to fix this nav system or to fill that billet or whatever. Um, I'm still no good, and I'm not going to put to sea, like you said, command pin. You would assume that that's the effort that would be put into it. Um, but, you know, we've all seen examples of, of where it's a little more draconian, uh, you know, as it plays out coming from the top down. Yeah. 
and and that institutes fear where you're just like look we're we're just going to hack it we're going we're we're going underway shipmates um so just figure it out yeah. right there's got to be balance right, right. so there's right. a supporting supported relationship between the isic and above right so those levels are there to support the the fleet unit, right? Not to just provide oversight and a, you know, a scrutinous attitude on them. You know, what are you doing? So yes, there's a responsibility at the unit level to make sure that they're on it and they're using all the resources they've got. But I'm telling you, you know, there's some outside, you know, systems and pressures and budgetary pressure that you don't get the resources you need. You know, you get a continuous demand signal. It can't just all be, Hey, CEO, what did you do with your Liberty plan? You know, at some point, yeah, you got to cut people on Liberty, but you know, it was my experience, like I said, for deployed, you know, the ship had gone to a five-year decom window on year seven, and no one forgot about it. So we got stopped getting HAB money and other things until we finally elevated that up. People realized, oh, man, at the higher level, at the TICOM level, the SURF 4 level, we failed too. So I don't think it just comes down to the ship. I think it's a chain of command failure, and we're seeing that. Yeah. I, I, all I'm saying is when somebody, you know, we'll, we'll keep the who out of it, but yep. if when somebody says, if you don't do it, I'll find somebody who will yep. – that sort of undermines what John's talking Absolutely. about is the assumption of what, what it takes to wear a yep. command pin. This is sort of like there was an all hands uh, in, in Cecil, back, which shows you how old this sea story is, uh, back in the day where uh, the, the type commander said, um, if you don't like it, talk with your feet. And guess what went off the page was letters dropping, you know, at that point. They did talk with their feet and the airlines benefited as a function of that, right? So, you know, and this isn't news to anyone. We know how toxic something said as as sort of a snap answer um, because – and you know how these all hands goes. The, it gets less and less productive the longer it burns on. And maybe the boss is getting a little bit tweaked with the fourth question yeah. that he's not quite prepared to answer. Or he doesn't want to answer. And he'll sort of just say something in a way that uh, maybe later he didn't intend. But I think empirically we're, we're right. And hopefully what Admiral Aquilino testified is, in fact, the truth. Uh, and we are, we are Im- improving. Uh, with respect to that. Um, so, you know, Scott, what, what is your sense with respect to the, the big picture? Uh, are things trending trending for the better or we, do we still have a long way to go? So uh, I don't know if you guys listened to the podcast we did last week with ET2 Fisher speaking about ETs. And there was some discussion about what he'd received in terms of leadership from his chiefs about 3M and some other things. Um, and, uh, if the audience hasn't heard that podcast, I recommend as background to this discussion, you listen to it. Uh, but is your sense that things are on the mend? Well, just to go back to the, you know, the CEOs saying, Hey, I can't get underway. You know, I've been the CMC of three different ships and I've been stationed on nine of them. And there's not a CEO on the waterfront that wants to say they can't get underway. I mean, that fail to sail message is something that a ship never wants to send. However, there's a lot more of them now than there was five years ago or more. I mean, it, it happens a lot more often than it used to because, you know, I think from the four-star level, they're making sure that ships have all of their capabilities and don't leave any of them at the pier. And what are the consequences? Are you, are, is your sense it's more white hat than it would have been later? The way I understand it and what, what I've been seeing is that if you're leaving a capability at the pier, it's not really at the unit level to make that decision. They're not, they don't want the unit level making the decision to leave a capability at the pier. Cause you never know when the balloon's going to go up. And, you know, the people that are going to fight the war, 
you know, from from boardrooms or whatever, they need to be able to understand what the capabilities of every ship are, and they expect the DDG to have all of the capabilities the DDG is supposed to have. But if it's missing a bunch of them or has no redundancy, you know, they need to know that too. So the way I understand it is that they they are clearly communicating what is wrong with their ship if there is anything before they get underway. And they're not allowing that risk to be taken at the unit level. It's being pushed up higher if they are getting underway with something down. But to your question, you know, what are the consequences of making those calls? I don't think I have any data that I could uh, could uh, could assess that. But uh, Scott's right. I believe the atmosphere is much more open to that now. The other piece is, you know, unlike your aircraft, uh, a ship doesn't have a chip light. It just comes on and says, okay, now you can't do this. Um, it's a little fuzzier to figure out, hey, could I mitigate it? Could I put another person there? You know, could I drive my cruiser down from Yorktown on one shaft? Uh, sure. Um, but should I, you know, when I could wait tomorrow and, and get the shaft fixed and, and come down on two shafts? So uh, sometimes, you know, these conversations I see in some of the threads online make it sound like it's a black and white thing. Um and uh, I would say it's almost never a black and white thing. Yeah, I think we, you know, a lot of this gets into we throw out this term about risk decision and making risk decisions. And I sometimes I wonder, do people even know what goes into risk decision making and the, and the impacts of perceived pressure? You know, what affects risk tolerance? Uh, Ward, you'd be familiar with this term, adjust culture. Right. Um, that right. that culture is heavily, you know, talked about, you know, within naval aviation leadership. And well understood. But if I went to surface community, would they understand the concept of a just culture? And how do we get introduced that there too? How do we borrow from naval aviation, you know, in a culture where everyone understands they have a role and yeah, you'll be held accountable, but it'll be in the context of, you know, did you try to at least do the right thing or were your actions just wrong and, you know, lack of integrity kind of thing. And then we just, we determine the accountability from there. Hey, Scott, right. so the, uh, and, and both of you have talked about this, right? So part of this is is the advancement system and building knowledge and capability within our sailors and our cheese mess. How strong do you think uh, the advancement system is, Scott, um, in that way? What's been your observation? I know I was doing some work to help shape selection boards to kind of focus the cheese more on technical focus and authority and reward that. How are we doing there and where do we need to go with that? Yeah, we're getting better with it, but we're we're not there yet. I, I was having a discussion with Fleet O'Raw uh, earlier this week about it, as a matter of fact, uh, what we really are looking to do is increase the uh, in the evaluation system. We want to make it more important to be able to know your job than it is to go to college or to you know do a collateral duty or community service or whatever. Those things still have value. However, we want to make it much more important to know your job and be an expert at it. And along those lines, we're trying to figure out ways to incentivize sailors to decide to go to a shipyard or a, a regional maintenance center or even to be an instructor somewhere where they are going to increase their technical knowledge while they're on shore duty, a quality shore duty that will help them and the Navy. Uh, we're trying to incentivize that. Right now, sailors that go to a regional maintenance center or a shipyard or something like that are usually, that's their second, third, fourth choice, and they're only going there because they want to stay in a geographical area again. So we get sailors that are, you know, middle of the road, MP sailors. You know, we don't get the top sailors coming off a ship usually to our shipyards and regional maintenance centers. And we're trying to change that because as a Navy, we really value technical knowledge. 
everyone always says the chief is the technical expert on the ship, but we've been training sailors for years where they're really the technical expert on the sapper program or a DAPA program or something and not as an engineman or a you know, machinist mate. So we're trying to make that turn fleet or raw. And uh, we've been actually all the fleet master chiefs were talking about it. We discussed it uh, last year on board one of the carriers. I think you were there too, uh, Paul. And that was a great discussion, but I don't think we've made any huge movement on it yet. I think everybody wants to do it, but we still haven't had the path to get there yet. Yeah, what you just said should be carved in stone because you just nailed where the culture migrated, not through any malice, just the way things iterate, how things evolve, you know. And when you look at the mishaps of McCain and Fitzgerald, the causal factors, just like any mishap, are not singular. It's this confluence of all these things, right? So I think John points out that these changes don't happen quickly, you know, um, and I think everybody's taking a round turn. What I, I One of the fun parts of this job is I, I do get to stay in touch with the fleet and, and particularly with the surface warfare part of the fleet. And uh, we have our sponsored student program, so I go down to BDOC and have a chance to talk to the folks who are, uh, you know, in, in those classes down there. And what I said to them and I use this from a guy who survived the tailhook, the fallout of the tailhook scandal, that on the back side of that, it's these are good days, right? Once you solve you know, the crisis, then people are more inclined to listen to you when you sing out. And, and so for ensigns and JGs who are about to go to uh, their first ship, you know, if they say, sir, this is broken, then... Or chief, I don't think that we're ready. The, the The chain of command is more inclined to listen, and then the type commanders and everything, the the supply depots, and are more inclined to give them, and they're better resourced to give them what they need. So, you know, I would I would suggest, in the most general sense, um, we're we're on the men with respect to 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 those things. I also um, have had a chance in recent months to talk to a lot of the uh, the witty the witties, which is another. Th- concept that's been borrowed from from tactical aviation you know this the centers of excellence and those folks are super moto and very much up and locked and it does my heart good to watch surface warfare uh, selectees be excited yeah. and not live anybody's shadow right so i think i'm answering my own question that i that i posted a message <laughs> i think things are getting better but uh you know i i think these data points that uh that scott pointed out are are merit you know um attention right i mean we're only as good as the last time we can we can say things at testimony we can solve things in 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 uh in conversation but are we actually doing the things especially in the face of this march to 355 ship navy hey scott what so what are the indicator what are your metrics of success that you know i know we've talked about we're on the leading edge but what are the things you look for cas rep numbers ta4 jobs uh what do you see in there or what would you encourage either senior chiefs or mass chiefs working on a on an isic level staff to do to help with this well the real indicator that i've been looking at pretty hard is advancement results at the regional maintenance centers because i can look at that and our advancement numbers for sailors that have the namps qualifications as opposed to those that don't are very very widely separated uh, and that's you know a beginning of the path of trying to promote sailors to want to come to these shore duties so that they can learn their trade and advance quicker too. Um, So 
So that's one of the indicators I've been looking at. You know, the CAS reps, we we really haven't seen a huge change in numbers of CAS reps, uh, you know, and that was something, you know, you would think with as we're getting the NAMP sailors at sea and we're able to fix more things at sea, maybe the CAS rep numbers have come down. But you got to realize as well, in this new environment, we're reporting a lot more stuff on the ships as well. There would be a lot of ships that would not CAS rep a redundant system back in the day because they figured they could try to fix it as they went along and, and they would get it when they got to a CMAV or whatever. Uh, now they're CAS repping pretty much everything because there's a lot more transparency. So, yeah, the numbers aren't coming down, but I think it's a result of just the environment that we're in right now. And, again, we deferred maintenance for a long time as a Navy. We wrote that check like 15 years ago by deferring maintenance because our up-tempo was so strong. And, you know, we're paying that check now. So, you know, we're going to see for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to see CAS reps, and we're going to continue to have to try to catch up. I would, I would agree with Scott that, uh, you know, it's always dangerous to, to look at one metric and, and then draw a conclusion because, uh, you know, the, the old story of the ship with the highest reenlistment rates um, where they gave the captain a medal, but they were reenlisting to get off the ship, you know, Um so uh, as we as we are more willing to accept reports of, of discrepancies, then you may have more reported discrepancies, which may give the indication that the fleet is in worse shape um, when actually we're just capturing the shape that it's in. But, uh, no, I think there's a lot of good initiatives. Um, uh, you know, to, to the SZ one, uh, I think it's in the hands, really, of the, the fleet. You know, um, the, the fleet master chiefs, it's, a, it's primarily an enlisted issue. It's, it's kind of a surface issue, but it could migrate over into the carrier fleet. So um, I hope that, it, uh, you know, it, I'm not saying we should do it, but um, it, I think it's worthy of, of uh, a pretty concerted uh, effort to look into it. And uh, But I'm encouraged. Uh, I'm encouraged by the attitudes that I see out there on the sailors. And, uh, and you know, they want to learn. They want to fix their ships. We just got to give them the tools and the training and the time. So Captain John Cordell, Master Chief Scott Kelly, thanks for a great conversation today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, so that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.